Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 7, verses 37 to 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But someone said, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Sometime in 1936 in Europe, which you can imagine was a fairly turbulent time, a man named Frederick René Coderre wrote to his friend Austin Chamberlain, the brother of Neville Chamberlain, who was Prime Minister of England at the time, um, and remarked in his letter that they were living in an interesting age. He later received and recorded Chamberlain's reply Quote, many years ago, I learned from one of our diplomats in China that one of the principal Chinese curses heaped upon an enemy is, may you live in an interesting age. Surely no age has been more fraught with insecurity than our own present time. And of course, this took place between World War I and World War II in England, but as Europe entered into a time of great turmoil. So interesting times indeed. As it turns out, may you live in an interesting age may not actually be an ancient Chinese curse. We can't find any actual reference to that other than the letter between Chamberlain and his friend. But if not, if it's not an ancient saying or an aphorism that came out of China or somewhere else in the world, it probably should be a curse. Because as often as some of us are tempted to complain about boredom when we are not in interesting times, when we find ourselves in interesting times, we inevitably look back with fondness on the times in our lives that were a little less interesting. It might even apply to the time in which we live. 
when we consider that just over two years ago, or two years ago even for some of us, the words COVID-19 were as yet completely unknown. Masking up our children was something that we did, not to send them to school, but to send them out trick-or-treating. And the thought of a trucker convoy brought back memories of really bad music from the 1970s. Now, now bear with me on this, um, because these are all political things. And I certainly have my own opinion, but I am not taking sides. That's not the point. We were also blissfully unaware two years ago of the term January 6th insurrection down in the States. And many of us, myself included, might not have known where to find Ukraine on the map or what the capital of Ukraine would actually be. But we live in interesting times now. All of these things have come upon us, whether we wanted it or not. We live in interesting times, and interesting times make for a lot of anxiety, to be honest, a lot of fear. We live in the world which, at least to some, feels poised on the brink or maybe already plunged into a kind of madness that we have not seen for a generation or two. I got a phone call the other day, and I had been just watching some news online, and the person who called me said, I'm sorry to interrupt. And I said, that's okay. I was just watching the end of the world as it unfolds on the interweb. And sometimes it feels that way. We feel anxious about the possibility of World War III exploding right before our eyes on our television screens. We feel anxious about what happens when the masks and the restrictions come off like they did Last summer, do we go back into another cycle? Some were very fearful about COVID's arrival. There are some who are perhaps equally fearful about COVID's departure. But these are the times in which we live. And we need to remember that anxiety is actually a more normal state for things in a world that finds itself in rebellion against the God who made it. Even the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, to borrow a phrase from Alfred Edersham, were certainly fraught with anxiety. In John chapter 1, we were told that he, the creator of the world, was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In fact, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So if we're ever tempted to think, wouldn't it have been nice wouldn't it be nice not to live now, some 2,000 years later, but to have lived at the time and the place when Jesus actually walked on earth with his disciples? We need to remember that already in John chapter 5, just a little over a year into his public ministry, the Jews were persecuting him and seeking to kill him. And by chapter 6, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, we discover that even his brothers, although they encouraged him for some reason or other to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, these who had grown up in the very same house with him, who had seen his life, who had heard his words for something close to three decades, did not believe in him. And Jesus stood under no illusions about the reason why. In verses 6 and 7 of John chapter 7, he said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. 
The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. He was basically saying to his brothers who at that time did not believe, you fit right in. You're part of the world. The world won't hate you. But the world hates me because when I speak, I testify that its works are evil. Now this explains what John tells us in verse 32. When Jesus finally did go up to the feast and begin to teach, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They were still persecuting him. They still wanted him dead. The crowd had some mixed reactions. Some were saying, could this be the prophet or even the Christ? Others were saying, just, hey, read the scriptures. The prophet doesn't come from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the leaders were unanimously, with a couple of exceptions, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, as we find later in the Gospel of John, they were just opposed. They wanted him silenced, and if that wasn't enough, they wanted him dead. But in spite of the hostility of the chief priests and leaders, in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, we've talked about this before, but this was a big deal. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles involved all of the pilgrims gathering at the temple and dividing into three groups and going in different directions. And everything was perfectly choreographed and timed so that those processions arrived back at the temple court just in time for the slaying of the sacrifice. And at that time, one priest took a large pitcher of wine and poured it into a funnel on one side of the altar. And another priest took a pitcher of living water, living water that had been taken from a a reservoir down at the bottom of the city. And he poured that into the other side in a funnel on that side. And so the water and the wine would mix and then run out and flow from beneath the altar. And we believe it is at just that time, interrupting this very elaborate ritual that Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Because that was the point of the ritual at the Feast of Tabernacles. God, through the sacrifices and through the pouring out of the water and wine, had been saying since the days of Moses, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And now Jesus, once again identifying himself as God, stands up and says, this is about me. What you are witnessing here, what you are doing here, is about me. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What an amazing invitation. Now, if we wonder what that means, does that mean we come back here next Sunday and we come to the table and, oh, hopefully we're drinking real juice again, not those awful little things. Does that mean come here? No. Jesus himself explains it in the very next verse, John 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, In other words, believing, trusting, is the means by which we come to Jesus and drink. When we come to him and we believe, we come to him and drink. And then, as the scripture has said in verse 38, out of his heart 
will flow rivers of living water. Now, we've seen this kind of thing before near the end of our study in the book of Revelation last June. Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. He who was seated on the throne said, said, Behold, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty... I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And that's a reference to some Old Testament prophecies where God said, you have forsaken me, the fountain, the spring of living waters, and have hewed out for yourself cisterns that don't hold anything. But all through the Bible, God has been saying, come to me and drink. And back in John chapter 4 as well, having a quiet, conversation with a woman of Samaria in a setting that was as far removed as possible from the uproar of the temple court, Jesus gave her a similar invitation. In chapter 4, verse 10, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then in verse 14, as we saw, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this, as we've already noted, has been God's intent all along. We find this imagery from the first couple of chapters of Genesis all the way to the last couple of chapters of Revelation. You may remember that there was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and then that river divided into four parts. There's promises of living water through the law and the prophets. And in Ezekiel 47, we read about that river that flows out from under the foundation of the temple and within a few hundred meters has become a river that could not be passed through. And in Zechariah 14, verse 18, we read, On that day, the day of the Lord, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. So this is not new. It's not new in John, and it's not new in Scripture. In John 4, Jesus called the woman at the well to come and drink. And here in John 7, he issues that same invitation to all. If anyone thirsts, he's not talking about physical thirst. We've already noted that in weeks gone by. When he talks about the bread of life and eating, he's not talking about physical hungry and hunger. And here he's not talking about physical thirst. He's saying anyone who finds that the schemes of the evil one or the trials and cares of this world or the elusiveness of the peace and comfort that we all crave, if anyone finds those things leave him parched and wanting more, let him come to me and drink and I will assuage that thirst. Again, we're not talking about literal drinking here any more than we were talking about literally eating the flesh of Jesus in the bread of life discourse. It's the same here as it is there. Salvation is by faith, and salvation is always and only the work of God's Holy Spirit. 
Jesus said it himself in John chapter 6. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, that is our flesh, is of no help at all. But he went on to say, the words that I have spoken to you is spirit and life. And his disciples at the end of John chapter 6 said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. To come to Jesus and eat then is to come to him through his word, to open that word and to let the Spirit speak through it. To come to him and drink is again to open his word, to hear what he's saying, and to believe. It's, it's that simple. His words are spirit and life. And faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So to drink of Christ when we are thirsty, when the times in which we live and the circumstances of our life leave us knowing that there has to be more, to come and to drink of Christ is to come to his word and to drink deeply of what he says there. But look what happens when we believe. In John 4, verse 14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he says, if you hear my words, you believe my words, you drink this water that I give, that water through the operation of the Holy Spirit becomes within you a well that springs up to eternal life. So we've got this beautiful picture of personal salvation, of God providing for all of our needs through the Holy Spirit and through his word. But more than that, here in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 9, whoever believes that water will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, in case you're wondering, am I getting confused here because I keep talking about the Holy Spirit and Jesus keeps talking about water. Verse 39 of John 7. Now he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him to, were to receive. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, and that river of living water that will flow out from us is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who believe. So the fruit of faith is not merely heaven when we die. Sometimes we think that's it. Sometimes we think, well, that's got to be the most important thing. As long as I don't go to hell, I get to go to heaven when I die. That's the best thing. But that's not the gospel. That's not the way that Jesus presents it. Jesus tells us once the Spirit has given life by the word of God, he comes to dwell in, and then he flows from our heart, making us new and empowering us to walk as children of light. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21 describe this for us. The Apostle Paul wrote, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So this is not an exhortation that only applies to the good times. 
This is an exhortation that was written at a time when the days were evil, and you may find this hard to believe, but the days in which Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians just before Nero's reign and the persecution of the church began in earnest, they were every bit as evil as our own, and and far more so, to be honest. There's a plague in Rome in those days that made COVID-19 look like child's play, literally. Um, They were bad days. And Paul says, because the days are evil, we need to make the most. We need to make the best use of the time. We need to be sure that we are not living as unwise people, but are living as wise people. He went on to exhort the church in verse 17 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Those two things stand in in opposition to each other. The will of the Lord is never foolish. Someone who is foolish is never doing the will of the Lord. And he goes on in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, which is just exemplary. He's saying, don't try to blunt the anxiety of your times to just take the edge off by self-medicating with booze or drugs or binging on Netflix or other forms of antisocial media. Just because the times are bad and tough and you feel anxious and you just want to retreat and not think about what's going on in Ukraine while we're here listening to the Word of God this morning, don't let things that might be good when used wisely become by overindulgence a false and unsatisfying remedy for the anxiety of these evil days. People are afraid, people are nervous. You go on Facebook, and to this day, two years later, you see all the memes of, yeah, you know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, just got up and had my first glass of wine. People are trying to take the edge off the anxiety that they feel in all of these ways instead of saying, no, when the days are evil, that's the time to really turn to the Lord and to find our faith in Him and to find that these other things are, are useless. That is debauchery, Paul says. Here's what you really need, but be filled. Keep on being filled. That's the tense of the verb there. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. And here's what that would look like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Have you ever thought about that? The, the structure here um, in the NIV is not good. Uh, it, it takes participles that explain the exhortation and it makes them into exhortations of their own. But the ESV gets it right. It says, be not drunk with wine, that's the first exhortation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's Paul's main point. And what that looks like is found in these participle phrases that come underneath it, addressing one another. Participles usually end with an I-N-G addressing one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs were kind of a Hebrewism for this book. And so what Paul is saying when he says speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is when somebody cuts you 
you ought to believe Scripture. Having been satisfied with a deep drink from the well, the the very words of eternal life that Jesus spoke, that's what should come out of us. Someone comes up and says, well, I'm really concerned about this war. What if this turns into World War III? What if, you know, tens of thousands or even millions of people end up dying? And we say that would be a terrible thing. But let me tell you who is Lord. Let me tell you who reigns from God's right hand in glory and who is in charge of all things. Because it says right here, he shall reign forever and ever. We speak to each other with these words, not with, oh, well, yeah, I know it's really tense. It's really hard when these things are happening in the world around us. Faith takes hold of the word of God and people who are filled with the Spirit speak to one another. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let the word by which the Spirit gave you life just overflow from you in your interactions with others. Like I said, if, if we as the people of God are cut, we should bleed Scripture. We should not be as those who have surrendered to the uncertainty and the anxiety of our times. Think, oh, I don't know. Things could get bad. Yeah, they could. But God is still on the throne and Jesus Christ is still King of kings and Lord of lords. And we speak to each other in those terms. We sing and make melody with our heart to the Lord. We speak the word with joy. We worship and we rejoice with one another that we don't have to carry those fears that the people of the world carry because we have the Spirit of God within us. We have been given eternal life and we have been given a Spirit who is meant to well up within us and overflow from us so that others may also come and drink. Even the things that we do not and cannot understand, we are to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in the last participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it looks like when we are filled with and when we are overflowing with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit isn't a treasure that we carry around in a locked case somewhere inside of ourselves. The Holy Spirit is this fountain that wells up within us and grants us salvation and life and then overflows and works through us so that we speak to one another. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and make melody from the heart to the Lord. That should be our default mode. Not just what we do when we come together on Sunday morning. Well, I guess we should suck it up and sing some praise. We should be doing that everywhere we go, being thankful to God for everything that he gives, even if we don't understand how he is working through it, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What if we actually heard these words and we did this? Not simply as individuals, but as the church together. 
I'm going to take you back to Revelation 21 and 22. If you have questions about how this fits together because you weren't here for the study of Revelation, or if you have questions because you were here for the study of Revelation, don't hesitate to come and ask me. But in Revelation 21 and 22, John is not being shown a vision of the world to come at some point in the murky, distant future when Jesus returns. In this section, he is being shown the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, who's the bride of Christ in the New Testament? It is always the church. And that's who John is being shown The angel says, come, let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he takes him away in the spirit and he shows him the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is the bride of Christ, the church. As Jesus presents her to the Father, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish, as Paul says in Ephesians. Towards the end of the vision in chapter 22, Verses 1 and following of that chapter, John wrote, Then the angel showed me. He's showing him the city. He's showing him the bride. He's showing him the church. And as that vision progresses into chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Sound familiar? Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the fulfillment of the rivers that flowed from Eden to water the garden, the fulfillment of Ezekiel 47, that river that no one can cross, flowing out of the temple of God. Here we have that river flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and this can be nothing other than the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. The river of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it proceeds as a mighty river of living water that flows from the throne at the very heart of the eternal holy of holies. But watch how it flows. Watch how the Spirit flows. The angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The city is the bride. The bride is the church. When the Spirit flows from the throne of God, He flows through the middle of the street of the city that is the church of Jesus Christ, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. It is God's plan that as the Holy Spirit wells up and flows out from within his people and his people come together as the body and bride of Christ, that spirit, those rivulets of the spirit that flow from each one of us become this mighty river. And watch where it flows. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that's how I know that this is not a vision of some future day in a world that is at last perfected under the rule of Christ because then there will be no nations and they certainly will not need healing. But he says the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb out through the street of the city and the tree of life which is found in that same city 
drops its leaves and the leaves are carried on the water and they are for the healing of the nations. This is all part of this Feast of Tabernacles. I wish we had time. But as the Spirit flows, healing comes to the nations. And nations need healing today. When Russia is busy invading Ukraine and the rest of the world is trying to decide if this is the opening salvo, the Fort Sumter, or the Alamo of World War III. And all of that, while the specter of communist China looms over Taiwan, and while the world looks for an end, an off-ramp, as they say, to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this is going to seem a little non-sequitur, but but please bear with me for just a moment. I want you to think back to an Old Testament story. I want you to think back to the time when the Israelites were backed up against the Red Sea and the army of Pharaoh was paring down on them. Those were anxious times as well. It's only later when the pillar of fire moves around to the other side and blocks the Egyptians from getting to them. So they're standing there with their back to the sea, looking at what is arguably the most powerful army in the world, bearing down on them to either kill them or take them back into slavery or some combination of both. But in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you. Now remember when he spoke those words, they didn't know what was about to happen. They had no idea. All they could do is look at the army that's bearing down on them and think, this, this looks like the end. But at just the right time, when it seemed that all was lost, Moses lifted his staff over the sea and the waters parted, something no one had ever seen before or since, and God delivered his chosen people. The thing is, these are fearful times, anxious times. The days are evil in so many ways. We can't begin to count them or name them. And I don't know, and, and I can't tell you what God is about to do in the days and months ahead. I don't know what's going to happen with Ukraine or even with COVID-19. But I do know this. The river still flows. God's Holy Spirit is still at work. And the leaves of the tree of life are still for the healing of the nations. This much is true, so stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. We don't know how we're going to get there or when, but we know where we're going. When we have a memorial service or a funeral, the banner that's up there to my right says, and grace will lead me home. I don't know where, when, or how, or when or how, but I know where. Grace will lead us home. And all along the way, whatever is happening in the world around us, we will be fed. 
with the true manna, the true bread of heaven, and with the living water, the Spirit of God, which flows always from his throne and from the throne of the Lamb. We don't know the whole story, but we know how the story ends. And that's where we plant our flag. Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no more the light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they, we, will reign forever and ever. These words are trustworthy and true. Therefore, drink deeply and be satisfied. Hear the word of the Lord and believe and be saved. In these evil days, do not be filled with anxiety and worry. Just don't. Don't be filled with worry, but be filled and keep on being filled with the word and the spirit of Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the end of the story. And even though you can't see the road that leads there, run with endurance the race that has been set before you. The spirit and the bride, the bride of Christ, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. For whoever drinks of the water that Jesus gives will never be thirsty again. That water will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And whoever believes in Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. May we pray. Father, in these times with so much going on, there is so much anxiety and worry and fear and uncertainty. We don't know sometimes where to turn or what to do. Remind us as your people that we are to turn to you and we are to find you to be our rock and our refuge, that very present help in a time of trouble, a place where we can take our stand and know that our feet are planted firmly on the rock who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Refresh us, Lord, with the bread of heaven and with the living water that grants us eternal life. And Lord, let that water flow from us. Keep on filling us so that we just overflow continually with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we do, give us eyes to see all the ways that you are at work in this world around us and mouths to praise you for your abundant goodness and grace. And Father, words to speak to call all those who are thirsty to come and be satisfied as they drink deeply of the word and spirit of our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.